Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Hey, hey, this is Nick O'Brien, and thanks for tuning in to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Christopher Gold, a singer-songwriter based in Appleton, Wisconsin. Together with his band, which is called The New Old Things, he has written and recorded folk songs, country songs, rock and roll songs, and pretty much everything in between, citing a love for songwriters like Towns Van Zant, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, John Prine, and anybody else whose work begins with paper and pen. To date, Christopher has released at least nine albums and three EPs, with eight of those releases happening in the last five years. He travels primarily as a solo act, carrying on the folk tradition of performances that blend music, storytelling, and humor. Over the course of the conversation, we talk about how he got started as a musician, going from a child mimicking guitar players in magazines to putting out at least nine albums and doing 150 shows a year. We talk about how his music is a form of expression for his obsession with songwriting. He shares why and how he transitioned from being a punk musician to the folk genre he now plays. He talks about the difference between his solo work and the work with his band. We discuss the Appleton music scene, the Mile of Music Festival, and he expresses his gratitude for it all. Christopher has done charitable work with his music for nearly 15 years, and he talks about the causes and organizations he supports and why he supports them. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you probably know that I like to ask the guests about how they handle the business side of being a musician. And Christopher's response to that question is about the value of being kind, reliable, and sincere, and just being someone others like to be around. He shares how his life inspires his songwriting and why that ends up turning into more happy songs than sad ones. And he talks about how he writes songs for how he wants to feel when he's going to be playing them. He reflects on his experience during the beginnings of COVID and how he focused on songwriting and recording, which ultimately produced the song you'll hear after this interview, which is called A Couple More. He also talks about what success means to him and his ambitions for his music career. While I'd seen Christopher play shows before this interview, this conversation was actually the first time he and I had ever met and talked, and I'm so glad we did because I really enjoyed learning about his journey to this point and taking in his perspective on music and life in general. So I hope you enjoy this episode featuring Christopher Gold. Thanks for sitting down with me, man. Thanks for having me, dude. I appreciate it. You've been on my radar for several years. I've seen you play at the Mile of Music a ton of times, but it was actually our producer who put the two of us in touch. Shannon Coulard, who I think works with your guitar player a little bit. Yeah. 
and I think she's ran sound for you a couple of times during the mile. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. She just said, I think Christopher would be a great guest. And, well, that's awesome. You know, that's for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I never turned down an opportunity to, to meet a musician. And, you know, if they come highly recommended, like you have, there's always a podcast conversation, awesome. you know, that could be had. So yeah, I appreciate it. For some context listeners, we are actually sitting in the lobby of the Paper Valley Hilton Hotel in downtown Appleton, which is kind of a central gathering place during the Mile of Music. I've done a few interviews here before, but this is the first time talking with Christopher Gold. So <laughs> most of these interviews, I've either seen the artists play live and or have met them and had several conversations. So listeners, you're getting to partake in Christopher's and I's first conversation. So man, let's just start from like where we are right now, present day. What's life like right now for you? Life is good. You know, there was a slowing down of things during COVID and the lockdown and all that stuff. I had a rhythm developed of how often I was recording and how often I was playing and working and that kind of thing. I think just the the disruption of that rhythm and then sort of trying to get your bearings in a world post that disruption has been a process. But we're in the process of getting new songs together, like the band is rehearsing again. We only rehearse when it's time to make a record. Okay. Uh, they wish we practiced more often. I just hate it. Oh, you hate practicing? Yeah. I like hanging out, but I don't want to play songs. I already know how to, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I just, uh, but we're, we're rehearsing and I'm looking at studios and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, things never go according to plan, but if they do go according to plan, which they won't, <laughs> there will be a new solo record from me and like an EP thing from the band this year. Fingers crossed. And that's uh, Christopher Golden, the old new things, right? The new old. The new old thing. Yes. Okay. It's a mouthful. It's a stupid name. It's so long. <laughs> Every time I have to try to fit it on a t-shirt or an album cover, I'm just like, why? When bands like The Killers were right there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Two words. Yeah. Yeah. So are you doing a, a good amount of gigging this winter? This winter was, was kind of slow. And some of that was a little bit intentional. I was sort of trying to figure out, like, you know, when you start playing music, I think rightly you have this like, I'll play anywhere. I'll play everywhere. I'll play on the street corner or at your bar or anywhere, whether it's going to be a good environment or a less than ideal environment. And I think I, I went through so much sort of introspection and stuff during the break. We were off for like 16 months, mm. which is coming off of several years of like 150 shows a year. Mm -hmm. So first you have like the, who am I without this? Yeah, yeah, your identity. Yeah, a lot of people struggle with that. And then you have, what is my relationship with music outside of the performance realm and even like the financial realm? And then sort of getting back out there, I have been a little more choosy about where I play and in what circumstances. I'm trying to back off the three hour, like nobody gives a shit. We're just here to sell the beer mm -hmm. kind of shows. And some I will continue to do because they're great and they're great places. And, you know, you meet good people everywhere. I mean, everything has the potential to lead to something else. But for the most part, I've been focusing on just where I think I'll be set up to do what I do best. Because particularly my solo show is very story-based and it helps if people are paying attention at least a little bit. Yeah. So it's going to resonate more in those listening environments. Yeah. And I'm doing a lot of house shows and, and that kind of thing. So. Cool. Yeah. Right on. You've put out like nine albums. Yeah. Or at least that's what I saw on Spotify. Yeah. I think nine is about right. And a handful more EPs. Mm -hmm. So at least from the perspective of having music out in the world and gigging, you're pretty accomplished. 
Yes. <laughs> but it, it never starts that way, right? It so, starts from the beginning. And, sometimes it doesn't even feel that way now. Right, right, right. <laughs> so what was the beginning like of Christopher Gold's music career? Like, like, when did you first feel that draw to make music? Take us through that experience. This is an embarrassing story. Okay. Those are the best fonts for podcasts. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I was maybe nine, maybe 10. I did not play an instrument and I wrote a song. And again, I was nine years old and it was to a John Cougar Mellencamp melody. And it was about, you know, driving fast and girls and stuff. Mm -hmm. I was nine. (laughs) And I recorded an acapella version of it on a boombox and just kind of kept writing. And I think the guitar. I mean, I know the guitar came second, but I think it came just because you realize like, well, I'm not going to write acapella songs, you know? Right. So uh, there was like an old Yamaha guitar, you know, like a lot of houses just have a guitar. Yeah. And my dad's a musician. He's a bluegrass mandolin player. Okay. But there was a guitar and my older sister was getting into punk rock and that kind of thing. and, And she got her hands on like a Stratocaster. And just, you know, my dad showed me a chord and my sister showed me a chord to age myself. This was pre-internet. Sure. And so I used to go to bookstores and either buy or just look at guitar magazines Mm -hmm. and just kind of mimic. That's how I learned a power chord. Okay. I just did that, like whatever I saw in the picture. So there were years of me thinking like I had invented this chord and it turns out it's a C. Uh I I didn't know that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Decided like if you put your fingers right here. (laughs) So yeah. But it was always about songwriting for me. And there have been diversions into other stuff that's less me writing. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's just been trying to make music so that I can write songs. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think you were drawn to songwriting first? I don't know. I really don't. But I am like sort of obsessively drawn to it. Like we can't talk if there's music playing i I can't listen to you i have to kind of try to hear specifically like what the lyric is and and that kind of thing there have been moments where i've tried to stop writing just because i i have a whole pile of songs and the new record just came out and i don't want to get ahead of myself but i just i can't help it like i see things and i hear things and i wake up in the morning with a few lines that i have to put in my phone you know before i can start my day Mm -hmm. it's like a compulsion really interesting it seems like it's a pretty default way of expression for you then. Mm-hmm. Do you do a lot of writing otherwise, or does everything you write just turn itself into a song? I do a fair bit of writing otherwise. Like I write poetry, and there was a time back when I had like a personal Facebook page, which I don't anymore, but there would be, I guess you'd call them essays. Sure. Just sort of long form thoughts on whatever was going on. And some people seem to like it, some people seem to not. For the most part, my released writing has been lyrical. I think at some point there might be a, a poetry release of some kind, but that makes me scared in kind of like a neat way. Like, like you know, you get used to, it It never stops feeling good, but you know, like the first time you get a box mailed to your house and it's got 300 CDs in it that have your name on them, uh-huh. there's a very specific feeling associated with that. And that feeling can't help but change when the 10th box shows up. Mm-hmm. So I'm always trying to figure out like, you know, what if I make an instrumental record or, or what if I forced myself to prepare and release a book of poetry or just something that'll keep you a little on edge in a good way, I guess. Yeah. 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 I tend to believe that like something that you want to do and it's scary. It's probably an indication that you should do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think so. There's growth in that, you know? Yeah. I've heard a few people talk about releasing something, like putting it out in the world 
is a really important part of the creative process. Mm -hmm. And I think with myself in some regards, and probably with a lot of people in other regards, like we have these worlds of things we do privately that we're kind of intimidated to expose to the light and have them be judged or, or whatever. But I, I do believe that like, you know, publishing or recording or releasing is an important part of the process. And to me, it still makes things a little more real to have like a physical product and that kind of thing. Cause again, I'm, I'm of that generation where I still think about albums and books and physical media and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So when you started as a nine-year-old writing songs and playing this Yamaha guitar, you were in Kentucky, right? I think we were already in Wisconsin when that started. I, I loved music forever, you know, but there was this this kind of weird moment when I was like nine or 10 and Hootie and the Blowfish put out their first record and I could see like the Mary Jane's Last Dance music video and I could see the Losing My Religion music video and and that kind of thing. But those songs felt like they had always kind of been around. Like, mm. you know, and I'm always interested. I don't hear a lot of musicians talk about this, but like, I remember very clearly Hootie and the Blowfish was the moment that I realized like, oh, people make music now. Mm -hmm. Like these guys, I mean, again, I was like nine or 10, but they were like 20. They They weren't like elder states. They looked like they dressed kind of like me, you know, they, they looked like my friend's older brothers yeah, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I remember I just had this epiphany that like, and I'm not here to die on the hill of the merits of Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> I haven't checked it out in a long time, <laughs> but, but free Hootie and the Blowfish music was like an element that just existed. It was, you know, there was trees and sky and music and all mm -hmm, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then I remembered there was like this fourth grade and there was this like weekly scholastic like newspaper. And on the back page, was this little article about Hooting the Blowfish and and how they were like college kids and they were making records and playing shows and, and that kind of thing. And I felt very animated by that. I felt like, you know, it's, it's just interesting that you don't hear people talk about, and maybe, you know, it's, it's telling that I didn't realize this till I was 10, but you don't hear a lot of people talk about when they realized that music was something that, that can be made in real time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then you were in... Appleton, mm -hmm. when you picked up the guitar and started playing. Yeah. And then what happened next? Were you going to open mics? Were you putting together high school bands? Yeah, there were a few bands. Like, it was that thing where, like, you and a couple buddies, I had a friend who played bass, and we would get together just, like, in my garage or his basement, and we would play through, like, punk rock songs that we had learned together. And then there's, you know, there's, like, 20 bands that you start just to play this talent show or play this new year's eve thing and then the band never does anything ever again mm -hmm. and then about 18 i started playing like open mics at coffee shops and, and that kind of thing and then that led to most of my 20s were spent in a band called the dirty rotten so-and-sos okay that was a three-piece we were a weird band it was, <laughs> we were a, I, I think it was a punk band and we played a lot of punk shows and a lot of house shows and and that kind of thing. But it was also really rooted in the blues. And I was playing slide guitar okay. and big hollow body gretches and, and that kind of thing. So I was also like screaming. You could see the, the parts of our band that people really wanted to like, but then the other part of it ruined it for them. Sure, sure, sure. sure. <laughs> like the blues guys would go, that's a cool riff. And then I start screaming my head off and 
they want to leave the room. <laughs> and then, I mean, it's it's telling that we were predominantly embraced by the punk scene. I'm very happy about that and, and proud of that and that kind of thing. The Hootie and the Blowfish phase was short-lived. Immediately, I realized, like, I'm not really relating to this as much as I wish I was. Like, I, I still know a lot of those songs, but, like, this was before I was, you know, I wasn't dating. I wasn't having a lot of the experiences they were singing about. So then you find punk rock and they're singing about, you know, adolescence and angst and feeling misunderstood and not knowing what you want to do with your life. And and that really struck me. And to this day, like, you know, I went and saw Anti-Flag last week. Like people always want to talk to me about folk music, which is cool. I love folk music. But if you really want to like get me excited, let's talk about the 90s epitaph catalog, you know? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So at what point during this journey did music grab you and help you think that this is what I want to spend most of my life doing? I think it was kind of a simple formula of like nothing else grabbed me. I've never had like a realistic ambition. Okay. I went from people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, fighter pilot. And it went right from that to music and it, it didn't change. And I've, I've heard this from a lot of people that like the realization that I just want to do this forever and I don't want to do anything else. That came decades before I even considered the possibility that like I could make a living doing it. You know, it was sort of the assumption that like, oh, I'm going to be broke forever. But that's part of the deal. Like I want to play music and I have to play music. You learn something I think really cool about artistic integrity in the punk rock scene because nobody is thinking about like, what if we got on the radio? Yeah. You know, nobody's thinking, what if we got on TV? I got to meet a, a couple like legendary people. I got to meet Kevin Seconds from the band Seven Seconds. We played a house show together and that felt huge to me. And he said he liked one of my songs and that felt huge to me. It was like the last decade that it started becoming a thing where like, oh, I don't have to have a job anymore if I keep working on this and maybe have this sort of side thing and all my side things are somewhat musical and i think it was uh dave van ronk he's like an old greenwich village folk singer he's right before dylan and he famously said like if you can quit you should quit and if you can't quit this is where you belong Mm. you know i relate to that as weird and sort of hippie and whatever as it sounds i think it's why i'm here you know what i mean yeah totally The, the way i feel not just when I play for people, but just like I feel a feeling when I come up with even one line that I'm really proud of. For me, it's, you know, you have all these thoughts and you're just sort of mulling them over sometimes for decades. And then all of a sudden it comes out in this line that you don't even really feel like you had that much to do with. But being able to have it on a piece of paper, that feeling, I just, you know, I can't find that a lot of other places in regards to like vocations and professions and that kind of thing. So I've sort of come to accept in the last few years that like, it's not really up to me. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. At what point did you transition from that kind of punk scene and that's what kind of music you were making to full? Well, the punk band broke up and I kind of bounced around for a minute. I played drums in sort of like a garagey, surfy band. And then I played guitar in a pretty chaotic, noisy metal band these are all things i love and then the solo career came about almost out of necessity like i I was tired of running it by other people you know what i mean like um being in a band is hard because 
there's four of us in my band now. And three of us are married with kids. And the three of them have like jobs, you know? So if I get a solo offer, I can get that booked and on the calendar in 30 seconds. Like I've even run it by my wife. Mm -hmm. Like she'll check my website once a week to see where we're going. Oh, sure. Sure. But, you know, coming off of the breakup of the punk band and, and the realizing that like, you know, I don't think anybody was in the wrong. We just had different, like, how hard do we want to go at this? And, and, you know, at the time I wanted to play can we do 360 shows a year? Like, mm. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think, um, especially as you get older, people develop like, you know, they decide they want to have a, a different kind of career or, or whatever. So the first couple records that I made as a solo guy were just the easiest way to do it. And it was like the quickest way to do it. I've heard rappers tell similar stories that like they had been in bands and then they realized like, I can play shows with a laptop or even like an iPod and I don't need to check it with anybody. And then I sort of started to fall in love with just the, the whole like troubadour thing. Every solo guy I know, and you've probably encountered this, every solo guy I know wishes they could bring the band out on the road. Yeah. Yeah. My fantasy. And I love, I love my band and I love playing shows with my band, but my dream life is just sort of like being in the car with my wife and my son or kind of alone and just, there's a guitar in the trunk and I show up and I pull it out and I play songs for people. And then I go to the next place. You know, I, I like that kind of Towns Van Zant, John Prine, just sort of tumbleweed. Yeah. Because I primarily think of myself as a writer. I like how close folk music gets you to the song. Like there's a guitar, but it's not even a very interesting guitar. That's three chords you've heard before play it kind of the way you've heard before. And in an ideal world, it sort of forces you to go, like, what is he saying? If this is different in some way from a John Prine song or, you know, an early Dylan song, it has to be specifically what he's saying. And I like that. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So how long were you just Christopher Gold solo folk singer before the band came together? I did two records that I recorded at my house and started playing shows. And initially people were kind of confused because at least locally, my punk band had had like a a pretty decent following. Like we could fill up a small bar and that kind of thing. And when I told people I was playing folk music, they assumed I was playing folk punk Mm. music and I was playing like pretty straightforward folk music. So I was initially playing a lot of the same places, like a lot of the same basements and, and bars and that kind of thing, which was great. And I, it was on the third record that I just started thinking like, It'd be fun to add some stuff to this. And it's always kind of about the reason you started your first band was that it was something to do with your friends. Mm-hmm. And and I have friends that play music that, you know, I want to play music with them too, you know? Mm-hmm. So now we've found this kind of nice, kind of weird balance between I do solo records and I do solo shows. And then we do band shows and we do band records. And every time we do a band record, it sounds less like my solo stuff. So like sometimes people will hear either an old record or they'll have seen me live by myself and they'll say, Oh, you got to come back. You got to bring band. And then we get put on a bill that like, maybe they weren't expecting the volume. Like I don't play acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. Like it's very different. It's very loud. 
But I always joke that a guy in a Motorhead t-shirt once said we were the loudest band he'd ever heard. <laughs> Which I still don't believe, but because that happened too. Like you start working on stuff and you realize, I don't just want to do louder versions of what I could do by myself. Like I said, right now the band is rehearsing and writing. And the way that works is I write a song and I do like an acoustic demo of it. And then I send it to them and we sort of rip it apart and put it back together and change the structure of it and the dynamics of it. And it's a lot of fun to be able to do both. I wonder sometimes, like if I'm being candid, I wonder sometimes if like I would have been better served by having a more strict focus. Sure. But I also wouldn't have gotten to do certain things like the band gets offers that I know I wouldn't get. Okay. And there are things I want to do. So it's it's nice to be able to do both. And it's nice to be able to kind of sort of retreat to my solo career when I get a little too sick of like schedules and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's nice doing both. Yeah. And so you've been at Appleton for all of your music making career. Yes. And you've seen this local scene kind of come into what it is now, which mm-hmm. stands out to yeah. me. And I know a lot of others, you know, I say that Appleton this area has a, an appetite for original music mm-hmm. more so than any other region of the state. And I'm sure Mile of Music has a lot to do with that. That's a sure. pretty big thing that happens here that, you know, some magazine called The Rolling Stone picked up and covered, you know, this yeah. past year. But definitely something special here mm-hmm. when it comes to the music scene. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, just your perspective on Appleton's music scene and the influence it's had on your career sure just yeah take us through through that what's it like to be a musician here it's good i like it (laughs) you're still here so yeah yeah well i mean that and that's the thing too like i'm a musician but i'm also a dad and a husband and uh we have a a 13 year old son and this is a great place to raise a kid and send a kid to school and then musically it is a very supportive community not just of me as a musician, but of me as a, a person. So like if, if I want to do something weird, like a charity event or something, people respond to that. And that's really, really cool. My relationship with the Apps music scene is strange because I switched scenes. Like I didn't go to a venue in Appleton until I was like 25 because I was playing houses and, and basements and, and all that kind of stuff. But I definitely think to do what I do, especially what I do on my own, which, like I said, is, is very story-based, and I talk to the crowd a lot, and it's wonderful to live in a place where you can sort of practice that and try new things and, and that kind of thing. I feel very comfortable playing here, which I think is a plus, because you can sort of take that feeling kind of everywhere else that you might go. But it is, it's a wonderful place to to keep coming back home to. And the festival certainly is a ton of fun. We've done every year. It's a lot of fun to just see the town kind of come together the way that it does for the festival. Yeah, I'm sure it's been instrumental in exposing you to musicians outside of yeah. Hamilton. And that's one of the parts about the festival that I love the most is mm-hmm. that there's a community that's very evident throughout the weekend, whether it's between people who just come mm-hmm. to the festival. I mean, there are 
plenty of folks I only see once a year. Right. I don't even know where they live. I don't think I know their last name. Sure. But I know that if uh, you know I'm going to the mile, I'm going to see them. And I'm, mm-hmm. We're going to catch up about who we've seen and things like that. Yeah. And then I know that exists among the musicians too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not uncommon to see two bands meet each other at the mile and then you know six months down the road you see them go on tour together or something like that you know what's that experience been like i definitely have like music friends because of mile music and because of where i live it's different than work friends sure it's kind of similar like you have music friends that like we see each other because of music and it's cool to have a thing that that is constantly helping people's paths cross in that way and just as a a music fan you know it's been a neat thing to see i've discovered like new music two blocks away from my house at this festival which is cool mm-hmm. and um you know we always get a chance to see whoever plays before us and whoever plays after us we usually get to see most of that there's been some really great stuff that's come through that i don't know if i would have found otherwise mm-hmm. so just as a fan i think that's really cool too when you're out on the road and you say that you're from Appleton, do people recognize? Yeah, that's happened a couple times. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that people will, you know, know about the festival or, you know, they've come through here and, and played or they've come to the festival. Yeah. I mean, I think folks in Wisconsin, maybe because it's here, right? It's like you just get used to it. You know, Appleton's mm-hmm. the music city. It's It's got the mile. But... I'm curious, like, as a musician, from that perspective, like, how often do you realize, like, how special it is to be here in Appleton? I mean, it's not a huge city by any means, at all. but it packs a punch when it comes to the music world. Mm-hmm. And that's unique, mm-hmm. you know? So are you kind of just used to it by now? Or do you take a step back every now and then and be like, man, I am really lucky to be here? Yeah, I mean, I try to not get too used to anything. I, I really believe in gratitude and and trying to be aware of what's happening. So I, you know, I played in Appleton two days ago, and I ended the show by saying that I was really proud to be a part of this community, and that I really believe in in this place and these people because I have the unique experience of like I wasn't just born here. Like I came here as a kid, but then I chose to stay here. I participate in different charities and and stuff around town and. I really believe in sort of putting in as much as you hope to take out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I I hope that my relationship with Appleton or anywhere else that's nice enough to have me come play is one of like gratitude and and contribution. And I get a little prickly when I feel like people aren't appreciative. Again, not just Appleton and not just my music, but of, you know, whatever cool thing. Like, you know, I've, I've gotten to open for a lot of people. And I've gotten to meet a lot of them. And some of them, it just wasn't their their best day. And maybe they were tired. Or maybe, you know, they were just kind of jaded. And, you know, we were talking about, like, like punk rock and that kind of thing. And there was a band, maybe now close to 20 years ago, called The Loved Ones from Philadelphia. And he had a song where he said, I'm building calluses where I'm supposed to feel. Mm. And I thought about that almost every day since even like as a parent you know like you get used to having a kid you get used to your spouse you know we were lucky enough and fortunate enough that we were able to buy a house last year and you have to stop yourself and 
there, I think there's a reason that gratitude plays such a big role in a lot of recovery programs too, because you need to sort of forcibly remind yourself that like, it's pretty good for the most part and you're pretty lucky for the most part. So yeah, I definitely try to be as aware and appreciative and grateful and try to give back as much as I can. Yeah. Well, on that topic of giving back, you mentioned, you know, a couple of times now doing like charity shows, things mm -hmm. like that. What charities are you supporting with your music and, and how do you go about choosing those? Well, as a family and sometimes in various bands, we've done the, the walk for autism every year for 13 years now because my wife for her entire adult life has done in-home therapy with kids with autism. Okay. So that one's important to us. We've done like food drives and stuff with Feeding America. And then I should know this, but I, I think we're 13 years in to um, a toy drive that my wife and I put on every year in December. We get some musicians and we get a, a venue and we put on a show and we collect money and toys for the local domestic abuse shelter. It's great that the kids can have toys around the holidays, but it's also great that the people utilizing those services don't have to stress out about how to get toys for their kid. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you don't have access to transportation. You don't have access to your own money, you know, and it's already a very stressful time and it's a lot of pressure to be under. So yeah, for the last, I think 13 years, we've done the toy drive to help them out. And, and then I do other stuff with them as they ask, you know, if they sure, okay, we can use some music for this. I'm always happy to do that. And at the end of the toy drive every year, I get on stage and I say like, we've done this for 13 years. We've raised tens of thousands of dollars and, and collected thousands of toys. And, and we've done it without having to get like, this is where the punk rock comes back up. Sure, sure. There's no corporate sponsors. Mm -hmm. It's not Festival Foods presents the Quid Trip U.S. Cellular mm -hmm. Drive. And the reason for that is that at the end of every year, I, I stand on stage and I encourage people like, all you need is something you care about and something you like to do. And you'd be amazed how easy it is to put those things together. Like the amount of times that I've, I'm lucky enough to get to play music, which I wanted to do anyways, and would have done for free and did for free for many, many years. The amount of times I get to use that to help a cause that is important to me or to someone else. I think that's an important thing to to remind people of that, like, you don't need a huge event. You don't need a huge budget. You don't need a huge, you know, anything really. You just need to give a shit about something. You know, the first year we did the toy drive, it was with three days planning and it was a punk rock show. We played on the floor at a bar here in town. And a couple of days before the show, I said, you know, we should collect toys for the kids at Harbor House. And because it was so by the seat of our pants, all the toys were brought by the other bands. So you had all these great, like, crusty, tattooed punk rockers that had quit smoking for three days so they could afford to go to Target and buy toys. And then we did it again the next year, and we just kept doing it. And it got bigger and bigger, and, and there have been years where we've been able to sell 200 tickets. And the other thing I'm, I'm very strict about is no one's ever gotten paid to do it. We've had, I mean, maybe 30 or 40 artists come play. And, and no one ever gets paid. I always say like doing the toy drive and, and doing the walk for autism and, and that kind of thing. It reminds you that like people want to be a part of something constructive and good. They're just not always quite sure how to do it. So if you can be the guy that goes like, all you have to do is come down to Gibson Music Hall or wherever and bring 20 bucks 
And then we'll make sure that it, that you have a good time and that your money goes somewhere really good. And we have employees of the the shelter. They come to the show and they get on stage and they talk about ways that people can contribute year round and ways that people can seek help. I just, I think music can be so all consuming that you can almost forget that like you're a human being in a community and, and you need to sort of tend to that community and, and, you know, just care about stuff. Yeah. And I would imagine that your experiences putting on these shows for, you know, these charitable causes has given you a real close look into like the business side of the music industry and like organizing and, and handling booking and, and yes, you know, all of that type of stuff. And as a solo artist and the front man for your band, I assume you're handling most of that stuff mm -hmm. for yourself as well. I know it's not always the most fun part being a musician. It's never been the most fun part. <laughs> right, right. But how did you kind of start to pick up that stuff? Did somebody take you under your wing, under their wing, or did you just like jump in and figure it out, or was it just a bunch of googling? Like, how did you figure out how to how to handle and manage the business side of of your music career? I mean, I'm still trying to figure it out, and I think a lot of people are because there are things that you're told you should do that I not only don't want to do, and this is like in the social media realm, but also that I'm not convinced would work. You know, when you said that I had been on your radar for a while. That felt like a miracle to me. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how you're supposed to let people know what you're doing and that kind of thing. But I, I think at the outset, it was just about building relationships with people. I think it's important, again, to go back to like, you're a human being having an experience and, you know, nobody does any job that's cool enough or important enough to justify them being a dick. And I tell people all the time, like, you should show up on time for stuff. You should say thank you. And you should be polite. And, you know, if the bartender says they like it, you just give them a CD. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, hopefully you'll get invited back. You know, mm -hmm. I think we've gotten a lot of mileage out of being reliable. But I feel pretty comfortable saying I haven't put on a bad show in a number of years. And I think that's important. I think a lot of it is out of your control, especially if you're someone like me who I don't want to be on Facebook and I don't want to be on Instagram or TikTok or it makes me wish I was dead. I just hate it, you know? And I think the more effective thing is going to be like, if people like having you around, you know, I worked in, in a tattoo shop for a few years and you realize what an important part of it that is. It's not just that like, oh, this guy does good tattoos. It's also like, I like sitting in a room with him for four hours. You know what I mean? To stretch that metaphor, I personally, I'd rather get a decent tattoo from a great guy or gal than get a great tattoo from someone that like, ugh, that was terrible. Yeah. I feel like I just got the life sucked out of me, you know? I'll admit to anybody, like, it's a struggle. And I, I think it's particularly a struggle right now to sort of refine our bearings after COVID and after a lot of places that we used to play have closed. For the most part, I hope that I have a reputation for treating people well, and, and maybe that makes them want you around a little bit. And, you know, we and I, we show up on time and, and we work really hard. And, you know, if you tell us we have a 30 minute set, we play for 29 minutes mm -hmm. and then we get all our shit off stage. We pride ourselves on like, we are the fastest sound check. We are the fastest tear down. Like, we're not here to be in your way. We just want to play our songs for people. 
it's a wild time to try to figure it out and and figure out where you're willing to compromise and and that kind of thing, you know, because I have done things on social media because they were sincere, like shared a picture of my son and a story or something. And you see, you know, the, the quote engagement that that gets. Right. And then you feel the world telling you like, you should do that every day. Right. And I, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Cause the other thing, you know, from the, the punk background is I, I think it's different for every individual, but I have a very clear idea of what selling out would mean and what it would feel like. And I would rather sort of have a, a career to whatever extent where people are assured that there's sincerity at play above anything else, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious, because you seem like a really grounded individual, aware, like a kind of a deep thinker, like where the inspiration for your songwriting comes from. I mean, sometimes in musicians' lives, it, it comes from challenges they've experienced in their personal life. I don't know if that's the same for you. And if so, are there any challenges that being able to express yourself through songwriting has helped you overcome? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I tell people like I'm an autobiographical songwriter. So I write about stuff that's happened to me or stuff that I think about. I've definitely used songwriting to process different anxieties or or fears or, you know, sadness or whatever. But it was after my third solo record in the punk band, you know, we're literally screaming about immigration reform and we were a political band. And I realized like I believe in that, but it wasn't necessarily what I felt compelled to do with my art. So I started writing personal songs. And after the third record, I sort of had this epiphany. We put out a record called When the Buzzards Leave the Bones. And it was the first New Old Things record. And I think it would be fair to say that it, I think it's like a 50-50 split, but you can call it a sad record. And I sort of went about the business of playing these songs over and over and over again. And I realized that when I'm in a good mood, I don't want to go on stage and sing these songs. And when I'm in a bad mood, they don't really help. And I wrote this song called Before You Were Born that was about my wife and my son and sort of the weird ethereal idea that like when you love someone, you love them more throughout time but it doesn't really mean you ever loved them less. Mm. And it's kind of weird and it sort of only fits in a song. But I wrote that song and people, surprisingly, like women would come up to me and they would say that their husbands had told them that's how they feel. And I realized that that's what I want to do. I don't force myself and I'll write a sad song now and then, but I don't think that my life is sad and I don't want my career to be sad. And I realized that if I can get even just like a little bit of hope or optimism or even just the clear truth that like my life isn't that bad, then it'll come in handy when maybe I'm not feeling that way and I get to go on stage and sing like I do feel that way for 45 minutes. And by the end of that 45 minutes, I feel better. I love sad songs. I think there's an important role for sad songs. I was just listening to a very sad song last night with my son. 
And I said, remember this, because someday you're going to get dumped and you're going to need this song. <laughs> so like, there's definitely a place for it. I just, I've been married for almost 17 years and I have a almost 14 year old son. And for the most part, I make my living doing what I want to do. And I just don't think it would be very sincere. Like I don't write in fiction. And a lot of times I meet musicians who've been married a decade and their whole new record is breakup songs. And I, I just, I personally have a harder time connecting to it. Sometimes my songs are aspirational. Like if I feel sad, I'm more likely to write a song about how I wish I felt. And it comes in handy too. Like I was in, in Nashville, not for an industry thing, just to visit some family. And I went and did the open mic at the Bluebird Cafe, this legendary place that like everybody played there. John Prime played there. Towns Van Zandt played there. And I managed to get on the open mic, which is hard to do. And I was sort of overcome by like the magnitude of it. Like just, you know, heroes of mine have stood right where I'm about to go stand. And it felt really good to go. Thank God I have a song about my wife and my son to play right now. That sort of makes me feel grounded and calm and like that I know who I am and that kind of thing. Just me personally, I wouldn't have wanted to get on a legendary stage and pretend I was sad for four minutes because I wasn't sad. I was thrilled to be at the Bluebird Cafe and, you know, I just eaten some pretty good French fries. So, yeah, what yeah. I'm <laughs> so let's zoom in on the song that you shared for listeners to listen to after this interview. A couple more, which is off an album you put out, one of the three albums you put out in 2020. <laughs> it was a busy year. I didn't have a lot else going on. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm sure people can relate. They just... <laughs> Yeah, so what was that song all about? What was the inspiration for it? Just take us through that process. Well, first, I wrote that song for my wife for her birthday. And my joke on stage is, when you're a full-time musician who gets all of their shows canceled for a year, songwriting is pretty much what's left in the gift-giving budget. Sure, sure, <laughs> so I sure. My, my wife a song for her birthday. It's very much like a pandemic song. It was kind of about this realization that, like, yes, we're stuck in the house, and yes... We can't do all the things we want to. I mean, there's an acknowledgement in the song of feeling fearful and losing some money and all that stuff. But this sort of realization that like, but right now this is the life we have and I'm going to write a song either way. So I could write the cranky, fearful song because I went through everything everybody went through. I went through the anxiety and the fear and the anger and, you know, we lost someone in our family and couldn't go to the funeral. And mm. it was terrible. And and still, you know, you're dealing with the echoes of that and the repercussions of that. And we had to homeschool our son for a full year. And you, you worry about what that's going to mean. That, But I just I think it's harder to write a hopeful song. Mm -hmm. I think happy songs sometimes can be kind of stupid because a, a happy song maybe implies that like you don't care about the circumstances and i would hope that my songs are more hopeful that like i'm very aware of the circumstances and i will reference the circumstances in this song but i don't want to deny all the other truths like you know my son's a teenager now and in the last year of what we can effectively call like his childhood we got to spend every day together. Yeah. All day. Yeah. I got to go for long walks and I got to spend all this time with my wife and, you know, late night conversations that we wouldn't have been able to have otherwise because no one had to be up terribly early the next day. And, and we were fortunate that she was able to keep working 
sort of at first remotely and then they figured out ways you know how it went they sure ways for people to go back to work and speaking of you know community and i hate the word but like my fan base mm-hmm. you know, i was able to keep making a living by recording songs at home and putting them up online and, and people supported that so yeah I, I don't like songs that are just sort of blind to what's going on around them and i don't think they're helpful to people but i think we just have a responsibility to each other and if i somehow have the means to take all this stuff and make people feel hopeful even if it's for two and a half minutes I sort of feel like I should do that yeah. if I can, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I'm curious also, I mean, you've been doing this for so long and you've reached a place in your career that a lot of musicians in towns like Appleton can't say, you know, they're not making their living from music. Sure. And and for a lot of musicians that I talk to who are not making their living from music, that's generally like their answer to this next question, okay. which is like, what does success mean to you now that you're able to do this full time? Are there hard goals or are there venues you want to play? Are there bills you want to be on? Is, do you want to get signed? Or is it more, I guess, less concrete and more just conceptual? That's a great question. I mean, I'm as ambitious as anybody Like, I've never had a record deal. I've never had a manager. I've never had a booking agent. And a couple of those things I would very much like, you know, like I've I've figured out a way to make a living, but I haven't figured out a way to do all the stuff I want to do. Like Mm -hmm. I haven't gotten to do any real substantial, like lengthy touring, that kind of thing. But I've known enough people that are on labels that just like, I'm not in a hurry to give up too much control, which is why like. I'm not in the business of of trying to fool anybody like booking shows is hard and draining and you deal with so much like unreturned emails or like, again, like the person that worked there that you knew they left and, and, and that kind of thing, like booking shows is hard. And I would love to someday have some help with that. You know, the weird thing about being a musician is that it sort of demands that you do all these things that aren't music. All of a sudden, like I woke up and I was like, I want to write songs and I want to play them for people. And the world went, cool. You better learn how to design a website. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want to design a website. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, <laughs> you know, so there's that kind of thing. So yeah, my ambition would be to, I want to play more shows and I want to connect with more people and I want to put out more records. And, you know, as big as that can get, I'll I'll take it. I'm not committed to like, no, I got to be, you know, the unknown guy just sort of, you know, travels a dusty trail or any of that. Like, I don't do that. But also sometimes to my professional detriment, I won't compromise on almost anything (laughs) when it comes to like, when this is over and when I'm gone, I hope the way I treated people sort of echoes for a while. And I hope that my songs echo for a while. And for that reason, I'm very protective of those things. It's like, I don't want anybody else involved. You hear these horror stories of of record deals. And even at levels you wouldn't believe, Mm -hmm. like, there's great labels, don't get me wrong. But I've heard horror stories from people that are on a label with three other acts. You surrender an amount of control. And I don't want to do that because I think when you give up some of the control, I think you... um, run the risk of of things becoming something other than what you want them to be. 
That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And I think that's permeating right now, at least the musician circles that I run in. Mm-hmm. There have been artists who have gotten offers and they've turned them down. Yeah. And at first when I heard that, I was like, wait, what? Isn't that like the goal? You know? And then they explain exactly what you just explained. You know, like I'm still trying to figure out like who I am and who I want to be mm-hmm. and what I want my music to be. And I don't want any other influences on that. Yeah. And especially if you figured out how to make records. Yeah. What do you need to put out records? Yeah. Like, what do you need for? Like, I totally get. And I still, you know, I would love some help on like the booking end of things. And like the communication end of things. What I think a lot of people still don't realize about record deals is it's just a loan. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like distribution and and stuff like that is cool. But like, you know, I just heard a podcast. A musician I like a lot was talking about he put out his record and it didn't get reviewed at all. And he asked some friends and the friend pointed out that the new drive-by truckers record didn't get really reviewed at all. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of what I think the industry used to have to offer it doesn't really have to offer anymore like i i mean i still think there's this sort of unknowable how do you get people to hear your music and how do you get them to know about what you're doing but i i don't know if i think a record label is still the answer this is why i would love to work with someone on booking because i think for me that's the answer like Mm -hmm. i need to go to places and I need to play songs and talk to people and make them laugh and meet them after the show and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I just want to keep making stuff that I'm proud of. I joke that my life is like an amplifier and I have the tone dialed in exactly how I want it. I'm just trying to turn up the volume. Oh, OK. But, you know, All right. All right. Everything's kind of how I like it. I just want to do more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that leads into the next question of. And I know you're grounded. You're happy with where things are. But what do listeners have to look forward to in the near future? What are you What are you working on? You, I'm sure you're working on another record. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're working on records. Um, I was making a record in 2020. We were like in the studio getting text messages like about COVID and getting text messages from like people saying they're going to shut everything down. And I think everybody had that moment you're kind of laughing at it. Yeah. So we had to stop making that record. And I think this year will be the year that we sort of remake that record. And I think if you come see me, you're going to hear a lot of new songs. And if you come see the band, you're going to hear new songs now, which is exciting. And there's been like a conflict because again, talking about like what the industry tells you, they tell you like, don't play new songs, play songs people know Mm -hmm. and then save your new stuff for when the record is out Mm -hmm. and i've just given up on that (laughs) yeah like again i I had a show last week i was opening so i played nine songs and uh eight of them were new unrecorded songs and i told people on stage like i want to be a songwriter and i wrote these songs if for now they only exist in this room between us What's wrong with that? Yeah, I feel like that makes it more special. Yeah, I think so. I think with COVID, everyone was forced to some degree to think about like what's going to come back and what's going to not come back. And and you start to realize like the only thing I have any control over is am I going to sit down and write a song? Am I going to play it for people? With budgets and money and, you know, 
every record might be the last record if we can't figure out how to make the next one. And, you know, if you make a record and people don't buy it because they're not into physical media and they can't find it on Spotify because there's a billion things on Spotify, mm-hmm. you know, it's just been sort of like a letting go of a lot of stuff and really tightly focusing on like, what am I in control of? And what do I feel good about doing? What I said at the show when I was playing all these new songs, like, I never told anybody that my dream was to sell CDs or even to make them. The dream at the very beginning and the the dream for how I'll spend my day tomorrow is I want to write songs that I'm proud of and that I feel good about and that maybe other people can find something worth finding in. And I want to share them with people. So there will be recorded music coming, I really hope, in 2023. But there will definitely be new songs at my next show because I just don't care anymore. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, if if you've seen Christopher Gold play before, well, then, you know, that should excite you because now you're going to go see him and hear some new songs. But if you haven't, well, what better way to meet him than (laughs) meet him with with the songs he's working on right now instead of playing the songs, you know, from 10, 15 years ago? Yeah. And again, I think when you write the way I write, which is like about where you're at. It feels weird. Like sometimes it's fun to play a really old song, but sometimes you have songs where you just go like, I don't feel that way. Yeah. That didn't felt mean that anymore. Way. Yeah. That's just not me. And I just, I can't wrap my mind around the idea that I would think, which I do that my, most current stuff is my best stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to give you my best stuff. I'm going to yeah. give you my pretty good stuff yeah. from four years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I joke about it, and I tell people like, if I have CDs for sale, if you want to hear songs that are just a little bit worse than these ones, <laughs> I can do that. I have that at the merch table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's funny. <laughs> I mean, that's another weird thing when you talk about like my new stuff is better than my old stuff. I guess it makes the old stuff not as good as the new stuff. So like. <laughs> It's it's funny, and I joke about it on stage. But like I said, I want to do the the realest, sincerest. I think the worst thing about like politicians is that people can tell there is a lot of calculation going on right now. And if you come see me live, the goal is for there to be none. Which is why, like, you'll hear a lot of new songs. You will hear occasionally like a joke that like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. Well, <laughs> the good news is I wasn't thinking about if this joke will make you like me or not. I was right. just thinking, this is funny. And I'm sort of in the moment right now. And there's an interesting thing about playing under your own name. And I want people to leave Christopher Gold shows feeling like they saw Christopher Gold. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to laugh and we're going to talk about philosophy. That's who you are. Exactly. And it's great to share it. I've been very fortunate to have people come up to me after shows and say like, you know, I didn't agree with that thing or I didn't love that thing, but I like you and I like these songs and, and keep doing what you're doing. You know what I mean? That's a cool feeling. And I think it's something that music can do that not a lot of other stuff can do. Like you could have nothing in common with someone. And if you are responsible for creating a song that they enjoy, it does change the dynamic. And I've had really cool conversations with people that I probably wouldn't have, that probably wouldn't have wanted to talk to me otherwise. Sure. And I, I like that. I do too. I think music can transcend all kinds of disagreements and, Mm -hmm. you know, conflicting interests and things like that. It has the power to bring people together, unify people, and particularly in the live setting, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm a live music junkie. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I listen to as much recorded music as 
any other music fan, yeah. but yeah, there's just something so therapeutic to walking into a room, particularly a, a listening room environment, mm -hmm. and sharing the experience with so many other people and the artists that's yeah. on the stage. Everybody's so attentive to what's going on, and there's a definite like impact on the energy level in that room mm -hmm. because everybody's focused on the same thing, and we're all having this really special, unique experience. I could leave that show and get hit by a bus. Right. It could be my last, you know, live music experience. And yeah, so it, every show I go to is so special mm -hmm. because of that kind of experience. Yeah, I don't know. It's much more than just the music, you know, mm -hmm. the music is, is the prompt, but I'm getting to know this musician, right? you know, yeah, and, and their preferred way of expressing themselves. And there's no buffer. No. There's no, like, like we took our son a couple of weeks ago to see Flogging Molly. Okay. And Anti-Flag and Skinny Lister in Madison. And it was great. And they're all bands I love. And in the case of Flogging Molly and Anti-Flag, bands I have loved for 20 years. And we took our 13-year-old son, and as we were walking in the door, the guitar player for Flogging Molly like walked by. And since then, my son and I have had three or four conversations about, like, there's something about sharing a space. It's not celebrity, and it's not fame, and I didn't want his autograph. It's just, like, my whole relationship with this guy has been on a screen or on a record or from a distance and over a period of time. Like sure. the time I hear the new Flogging Molly song to them, it's a year old. But when he walks by you, you just feel this, this thing that I feel very fortunate to be able to maintain, you know, what I mean? I'm almost 40, but again, I've never asked for someone's autograph. I've never asked for a picture, but like, I just can't be the cool guy. Yeah. Like if, <laughs> if, if I get to open for you and I love your music, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to try to like, oh, hey, yeah, it's cool to be here. Yeah. How's yeah. the tour going? I'm going to say like, I love you so much. And they're like this specific song. And, and again, whether or not that's for the professional good, you know what I mean? I don't know. But like, I don't want to pretend like I don't think it's cool to see the guitar player for Flogging Molly just walking by. And like, I didn't go, oh, like, that's him right there. It just feels neat, you know? You go to a football game and you see this thing happen in front of you that's only ever happened on a TV. It feels different. And I think there's something kind of ineffable about it. That like if you really love music, especially if you really love a musician, there's something more beyond just the uniqueness of the experience and sharing it with other people. Like one of the things I said to my son was like, when you see him, you're forced to remember he's just a guy. Yep. Like he's just a guy. Like he's a human guy mm -hmm. who's like on his way to get a bite to eat or whatever. And I think that's a neat feeling. And it's to weirdly bring it back to the beginning. It's what kind of set me down this path in the first place. Yeah. The realization that like, these are just people. These are just men and women doing a thing that I could do. The ship has probably sailed for my Hootie and the Blowfish fest <laughs> rise to fame. But like I'm writing songs that I like and I'm, I'm having a good time doing it. So Yeah. Well, I'm having a good time talking to you yes, about it. Yeah, um, thank you very much. Last question for you, though. One question I ask everybody. Okay, I'm scared. <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs> for the listeners who are tuning into this conversation, what is the most important thing that you want them to know about you 
the person, the musician. That's interesting. I think I would want people to know that it's real. And if you like something or don't like something about me, I either appreciate that or I'm sorry, but I really, really, really value sincerity and authenticity. And like, I think it's what over the years has like turned me off of a lot of like the social media stuff. It doesn't feel real to me. I want a life that feels real. I hope people can perceive that like I'm trying, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm trying to like be a good human and a good songwriter and a good member of a community and a, a good show. I want to have real experiences with real people. And I, I hope that when people interact with me or my music or whatever, I hope they walk away feeling like, you know, it's interesting. I had previous this conversation, I had not ever articulated it. Like I play under my own name uh -huh. and I hope that people feel like it makes sense that like, oh yeah, he's just Christopher Gold because like, you know, if you came and saw me live, you'd hear me say some of the stuff I've said today. Or if you went and had a taco with me, it would largely be the same. Mm -hmm. You know, there's varying levels of crassness. Sure. Depending on, sure. <laughs> on the crowd size. But like, I'm realizing as I get older that like, life is too short to try to figure out what each individual person wants you to be and then try to pretend to be that and to do things you don't feel good about doing and that you don't want to do and that don't excite you. So... I just want to write songs and connect with people and hopefully leave all this just a touch better than I found it, I guess. Yeah. That's beautifully said, Christopher. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about that myself. You're prompting me to reflect on things as well. Man, I got to say, this is an awesome conversation. I could so talk much. to you all day long. Yeah, man. I don't know that listeners would want to, they, they got they got to have time for other things in their life, but we really appreciate you sitting down with me. Sure, we'll cross paths again. oh i'm certain of next it. time you can come say hi yeah absolutely cool well, i've been staying up late i've been sleeping in i've been reading walled in five pages at a time been trying to love you a little better every day I've been learning not to need a thing I've been having coffee late in the afternoon Trying to count these blessings five minutes at a time and Having longer kitchen conversations Spending all my days Singing all the old Bob Dylan songs to you And they say Better days are on the way, but I ain't really sure. Cause the days they said were bad, some of the best that I'd ever had. And I know it's foolish, but I'll take a couple more. 
lost a little money I've been a little scared I've lost a little status Tried my hardest not to care But if the upside is late nights And a little more time with you You know you won't hear me Better days are on the way But I ain't really sure Cause the days they said were bad Some of the best that I'd ever had And I know it's selfish Take a couple more Thanks for listening to the Musician's Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musician's Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musician's Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.